Romans chapter 13, verse 2 through 4 will be our, our primary text as we've just read. My name is Jason, I serve as one of the elders, and I am eager to uh, consider this text. This is not a light one today, is it? This is an important text for us to understand in any, certainly in any season, any situation, um, or whatever country we might call home, but it seems particularly pertinent uh, for us, especially in these past number of years, um, and in our country. And so, as always, we're going to move forward with faith and ask for the Lord's help in understanding His Word, because we just can't on our own. We need His Holy Spirit uh, to illuminate this, this text for us today. Um, we've been going through Paul's uh, letter to the Romans, uh, first century uh, city, and uh, as he's come into chapter 13, he's begun to talk about government and governing authorities, and in particular today we come to a text that could not be more applicable or more clear in its application uh, for us today. And so it, it just seems fitting to uh, approach this text through the lens of Jay-Z because there's no better prophet in our day to consider God's word first. But when he was uh, 24, 25 years old, Jay-Z was actually driving south on the New Jersey Turnpike and a police officer pulled him over. And if, if you know his discography, then you know that in 2003, he wrote one of his great hits, 99 Problems. Uh, which he recorded this incident. And here's how he lays out this picture, which is really not uncommon, but a very common situation that many people find themselves in. And he articulates it perhaps better than most. And if you want to sing along, that's cool too. Here's what he says. He says, the year is 94, in my trunk is raw, in my year, and rather in my rear view mirror is the law. Um, Got two choices, y'all. Pull over the car or bounce on the devil, put the pedal to the floor. Uh, and I ain't trying to know highway chase with Jake, plus I got a few dollars, I can fight the case. So I pull over to the side of the road, I heard, son, do you know why I'm stopping you for? He says, because I'm young and I'm black and my hat's real low. Do I look like a mind reader, sir? I don't know. Am I under arrest or should I guess some mo? Well, you was doing 55 and a 54, license and registration and step out of the car. Are you carrying a weapon? I know a lot of you are. Regretfully, Jay-Z's experience is not unique. And in fact, whether or not you like rap or have ever heard that song before, we have a lot to learn from the summary of his situation. See, many identify with this song because their experience, and they have experienced similar tension, frustration, and fear when they encounter the police. And as we've been reminded far too often in the past number of years, particularly with the advent of social media, that the black community in particular is regularly targeted for this kind of fear. See, over and over again, we've seen black people viewed and treated as threats while they're sleeping, for being in their house, or bird watching. And in each of these and countless other cases, black image bearers were either threatened with police violence or experienced brutality to its most extreme, even murder. Now I know this is deeply contentious to speak in such calculated and clear ways about what's going on in our world from God's word. It's divisive. These stories are incredibly polarizing. Even in bringing them up, something stirs in many of our souls one way or the other, and I believe God wants to address that today. In his debut column for the New York Times, Iraqi war veteran David French references a Gallup survey about policing in America. He writes, in 2022, no institution, aside from the presidency, reflected a greater partisan trust gap than the police. 
A full 67% of Republicans expressed confidence in the police versus only 28% of Democrats. And I assure you, the divide amongst God's people within the church is no less severe. In fact, it probably is more severe. Now, before we interpret that too greatly, we have mixed emotions about that. I think that's what's really clear, is that we have very different views and experiences and emotions when we talk about police. We talk about policing, but it's nothing new. Like anything, I think it's really important to take a historical perspective and realize that our agitation and discomfort or our polarization over an issue is not new. One of the, great, one of the worst things that we can do when we face a problem is act like no one's ever faced it before. And so we should be curious, deeply curious, not just about American history, but about the history of the church. See, America is not unique in its complex relationship with governing authorities and law enforcement. Imagine with me Paul's original readership of the book of Romans. They are all new Christians. In other words, there's no one among them who has been following Jesus for decades or for perhaps many years. They are all new followers of Jesus. They're all ethnically, socially diverse. They're citizens of the same city, but they all have these different religious backgrounds. Yet they're all citizens of a city ruled by an emperor who claimed to be God. Not just God-like, God. That he was the source and substance of all power. And soon their brothers and sisters would be led by soldiers into arenas to be eaten alive as spectacle. Not only so, but about six years after Paul writes this letter to Rome, the entire city burns down and the emperor, Emperor Nero, blamed the Christians in 64 AD. So I think it's fair to say they also, Paul's original readership, had a complex relationship with governing authorities, law enforcement, soldiers, police. And so amidst this tension of our day and Paul's, I think we come to a text that probably is one of the most upsetting in all of the scriptures. It's really hard to reconcile. Paul tells us to not only resist, to not resist authorities, but to be afraid Because he, that's the law enforcement or the governing authorities, does not bear the sword in vain. A scholar, Esau Macaulay, argues persuasively, I think, that what Paul has in mind here is not just general authorities, but in particular law enforcement, soldiers, or what we might now call police officers. He's giving specific instructions about how to view their power, their responsibility, and their role in society. After all, that's who readers will be facing. Few of them would face Nero face-to-face, but they certainly would face those whom he sends out, his minions, his, his soldiers, those who govern underneath his power. Paul even goes as far as to call them God's servants, the one who bears the sword. He calls them that twice. And so we need to consider how Christians, I think, should relate to police. And that's what I'd like to talk about today. What's it look like to respect authority as God's servants in the midst of all of that complexity. Here's how we'll navigate the text today. The resistance toward authority, the blessing of authority, and the servitude of authority. So the resistance, the blessing, and the servitude. And to that end, I desire to be available to God's Spirit. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you calm my heart? There's a lot of fear in me this morning about being misunderstood. And while that is really not a big deal in the grand scheme of things, uh, Father, we we don't want to be confused or misled by your word. Um, We desire to submit 
to the truth and the beauty of Jesus as revealed in the scriptures. And so I pray that's what you would do in my heart and in my mind, give me clarity of thought. Help me to be anchored deeply in your word and your truth because that's what all of us want as your people, as your sons and daughters. And so I pray not only for myself, but for my brothers and sisters, I pray you give us clarity of thought. Likely a ton of emotions have already shown up in our hearts and in our minds from our experiences, whether personally or secondarily through family members or friends or a community. And so, Father, we need your help. This is a really important idea for many of our brothers and sisters, but also for those who um, have been hurt, those who have experienced even that kind of pain of uh, the church's teaching around what it means to submit to authority. And so we ask for your help. Would you heal us? Would you direct us um, in accordance with your word? Would you help us to repent where we need to repent? Would you, would you um, help us to receive your care and your healing where we need that? And so we're just really grateful that you're that kind of a loving father who can do all of that by your power, by your grace, because you love us. So you have our attention. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so Paul's been talking about authority and generally about governing authorities, and now he gets more specific about the kinds of authorities that he is talking about, and not just now in a broad idea of them, but how we ought to live in light of them is kind of his transition here in verse 2. So look at it again with me, Romans chapter 13, verse 2. He says, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Notice the word therefore. That's one of those transitional terms that is a kind of connective tissue, if you will, between what Paul has just said and what he is about to say. And what Paul has just said is that God ordains all authority, but God does not endorse all authority. And that's really critical for us to understand, that God ordains all authority, but he does not endorse all authority. In other words, everything is under his power, but that does not mean that everything under his power is obedient and submissive to his will and to his goodness and to his grace. Said differently, God shares his authority with human leaders, but God remains ultimately in authority over all things. And so we said last week that all human authority is borrowed authority. All human authority is borrowed authority. And that's true with things perhaps that have been entrusted to you, like money and talents and gifts and nature, right? You've been given all of these things to steward well, but you don't own them. The same is true with the institutions of family and government and the church. These have been given to us, entrusted to us, to give leadership, guidance to, stewardship, dominion, the scriptures say, but we are still just stewards. God remains the owner. So it's from that principle that Paul says, in light of that reality, of that authority, don't resist authorities. He follows this command with adding this motivation that if you resist authority, there's going to be consequences. You will be judged and you will incur judgment. So like all of Paul's instruction, we have to understand, why are you writing this? Like, where is this coming from, right? Especially because after chapter 12, this is kind of an abrupt turn, right? Don't return uh, evil with evil, but return it with good, like all these sort of general. And then he goes real acute and clear about government and about governing authorities. And so we should ask, why is Paul teaching this? Well, similarly, Paul is not endorsing all authority. Rather, he's laying out this standard. He's laying out and explaining essentially a baseline for how government, how governing authority should function, and at least right here, withholding any uh, comment about the exception to that rule, which I think that's what we bristle at. 
We don't mind the principle, but we'd like the caveat, right? We'd like, except for when these things happen. Submit to governing authorities unless all of this takes place. Now, Paul really isn't getting that, but I think getting to that specifically, but I think in order to understand what he is saying, we have to understand what he is not saying. We have to understand the context that his first century readers would have received it. And remember, Paul is not writing in a sterilized environment in Rome. He's writing to a very contentious and complicated cultural moment in the life of the church. And so in order to understand what Paul actually is prohibiting, let's consider a number of ways that we resist authority. A number of ways that maybe not not just police authority or governing authority, but generally, why do we resist authority? Because I think that's why Paul has to write this. He has to write, don't resist authority, because we kind of love resisting authority. And so he is trying to curtail and respond to a natural tendency that when somebody comes and puts authority over us and rules, we just go, ah, I don't feel great. I'm going to bust out of those things. Here are a few reasons why I think we do that. First, I think we resist authority because we despise authority. We despise it in general, no matter where it's coming from or why, especially when we have experienced the shadow side of authority. We've experienced the negative effects of ungodly or unrighteous authority. We are compelled then to throw the baby out with the bathwater, as, it, as it, uh, the saying goes. As it relates then to modern policing relations, it often manifests in a demand to do completely away with law enforcement. Of course, like many ideas, and I think this is really important, there's nuance to this. This is on a spectrum, but one of those ideas is to defund the police. Some want to reallocate resources away from the police to government, or away from government really, more to social development. Others want to completely abolish the police. Abolishment educator and advocate Miriam Kaba points to places, believe it or not, like Naperville. Uh, she points to Naperville and says, this is a place where there's disproportionate money being moved away from law enforcement toward programs that help with social development. She told the Chicago Reader back in 2020 that people in Naperville are living abolition right now. The cops are not in their schools. They're not on every street corner. So one of the reasons that we resist authority is we despise it. We want to get rid of it. Another reason that we resist authority is because we want authority. We desire it. More often, perhaps, this happens at the level of the heart. We are resistant to authority because we want to be in charge, whether just of ourselves or in general. We know these impulses come up when those commercials show up and you go, this, I would do so much better than her. I would do so much better than him. That impulse is what we're talking about. We think, you know what? I kind of see this more clearly. I kind of have some better ideas. Um... And it's really hard to nail down. This is particularly challenging because it changes. It's like nailing jello to the wall. Because we all sort of want authority and there's limits to that. Not like that much, but right here it's like this equalizer of trying to find out just the right amount of authority that makes me feel comfortable. But essentially we live in a time where we presume that we belong to ourselves in the most extreme sense of the word. And so whenever there is limits put on owning at least myself, we bristle at that. We don't want to be told what to do. We don't want to be given limits. Even though the way of Jesus is one of self-denial, even within the church, we sort of go, ah, am I supposed to deny that part of myself? Because I feel like that's actually really good and really nice and really fun. We don't want to be told what to do. And Professor Alan Noble explains that if I am my own and belong to myself, the first and foremost significant implication is that I'm wholly responsible for my life. This is where it reveals a little bit of tension. I want complete authority, but I don't always want all responsibility. 
I want complete control, but I don't really want accountability. And this is where the human project really breaks down often. Or I want complete authority, but not accountability. See, he notes that this is really, uh, Noble does, this is really exhilarating and exciting, but it's also terrifying at the same time. Right? Because the minute someone like calls our bluff and gives us complete authority, like, well, could somebody just like let me know I'm on the right track and just give me a little bit of feedback and make sure, right? So as soon as I get all authority, I'm like, ah, maybe that wasn't exactly how it goes down. It reminds me of Jesus' disciples in Matthew 10. They're all yelling at each other because they want complete authority. You know what Jesus says to them? You don't know what you're talking about. You don't know what you're actually asking. So sometimes we resist authority because we desire authority, but we don't really know what we're asking. Thirdly, we resist authority because we disrespect authority. So maybe we don't despise it and want to get rid of it, and we don't desire it, but we just simply disrespect it. In other words, we, we know the laws, we know who's in charge, and we don't care. We just break those laws. And so and in so doing, we disrespect the position and the outworking of that position of authority over us. It might be traffic laws, right? It might be tax laws that maybe you are in the middle of deliberating. Should I really abide by that? I'm pretty sure I could sneak around that and get a few hundred dollars back on my tax return. It could be that you have drugs in the back of your car and you're driving down the New Jersey turnpike, right? Whatever it is, at some point we are faced with simply just disrespecting the authority that's over us. And I don't know about you, but this is what I do. I go, this wasn't exactly why they put that in place anyway right? And so I'm, I'm abiding by the principle of the law, but not the letter of it, but they would understand why I wouldn't do that. Like the other day, a cyclist yelled at me for running in the bike lane, and I was like, who in the world do you think you are for yelling at me for just exercising, right? And then I did some digging, and she was probably right. I probably should not have been running in the bike lane, and I was really frustrated because the law is pretty plain that I shouldn't do that, but I, don't, I break it all the time. There, there's confession for the day feels safer, I justify it. feels good to tell you. <laughs> Another reason that we might resist authority, and finally, is that we disagree with authority. So it's not that we despise it, it's not that we desire it, it's not that we disrespect it, but we disagree with authority. And in other words, that we've, we've seen and we've experienced how unclear, unjust, misguided, or unhelpful a particular expression of authority is, and therefore we just fundamentally disagree with it. Maybe you resist a certain legislation because you've seen the negative effects of that rule on your community or on people like you or maybe just your neighbor or in God's world in general. It reminded me of a group of uh, Jewish statesmen who were appointed over the affairs of Babylon in, in Daniel 3. And their governing authorities told them that they uh, were supposed to worship the gods of Babylon and, or the consequence would be that they would be burned alive. And perhaps you know the story, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they respond to the king this way, if this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. What they're doing is disagreeing with authority. The authority over their life gave them an instruction that was contradictory to the will and way of their God, and so they disagreed and they disobeyed. So I think Paul, reflecting on all these different things, whether it's uh, despisement or desire, dis dis disrespect, or disagree, I think Paul has in mind when he says, do not resist authority, he has in mind those first three, and there may be more. See, when he says that we should not resist authority, we should not resist law enforcement, he's saying we should not despise, 
desire, or disrespect authority. If and when we do, Paul says, there will be judgment. Why? Because God has placed authority in our lives, even police officers, for our good and for his glory. And resisting them out of despisement, desire, or disrespect is resisting God himself out of despising him and desiring his authority and disrespecting him as the authority. But we can and should disagree with authority when it is not in line with God's goodness and his gospel. But even in our disagreement, and this is what's also hard, in our disagreement, there's still a way to do that righteously. So just because we disagree does not then open the floodgates to be able to behave however we desire. It may not always look like we expect. Paul gives us a deeper motivation now for not um, unrighteously resisting authority. Look at verse 3, Romans chapter 13, verse 3. For rulers, he says, are not a terror to good conduct but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? So remember, God ordains all authority, but he does not endorse all forms of authority. So God institutes governing authorities in general, law enforcement in particular, in order to bring order. This is what we looked at, at last week, last Sunday from verse 1. Or in Paul's language here, that, that they bring order by being a terror to bad conduct. That's a blessing. That is a blessing of authority. Governing authority, which reflects God's character and purposes, is good. It's good for us as individuals. It's good for us as a society. A police force that staves off evil and approves righteousness is a grace to our community. It's a way in which the wrath of God fosters a healthy fear which promotes the common good of justice, of order, of safety for its citizens. Notice how Paul continues. Look at the latter half of verse 3 on into verse 4. If that's the case, if, it's, if those authorities are a terror to bad conduct, then do what is good and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who cares, or rather carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So our response as citizens as citizens under the authority of a law enforcement specifically, and ruling authorities in general, is to do good. Live within the rules. Vote. Pay taxes. Abide by traffic laws. In other words, here's what I think Paul's point is. Christians, Christians should not be hard to govern. Christians should not be hard to govern. We should be a joy to lead. We should be good news in our neighborhoods. Our aldermanic authorities should be glad when they see that a Christian is on their schedule for the week. Wonderful. Here comes someone who loves their neighbors. Here comes someone who abides by the laws. Here's someone who knows the difference between a truth and a lie and good and evil. They're thoughtful. They're encouraging. They're respectful. Can you even imagine if that was the reputation of Christians? Sure, they don't always agree. With me, sure, they don't always agree with this particular person or that, but every time they disagree, they always show love. Can you even imagine? In fact, the Scriptures point us to so much more than just complying with social order. So if you're uncomfortable, it's going to get a little bit more uncomfortable for the glory of God. Paul actually instructs his apprentice, Timothy, to pray for the governing authorities, to pray for their good. 
He says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all peoples, for kings, and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Christians should be a joy to govern. And when a ruling authority is with a Christian, they could say, I feel like this person has been like praying for me. Like they are about my good. They may disagree with me fundamentally. They may protest and rally and give witness to a different vision of the world than I have, but I've never questioned their love. I've never questioned their heart. See, we should pray for those in authority, praying for their blessing so that they will be a blessing to those under their charge. We're to do good under authority. We're to bless those who are in authority. Now, this is not only how we demonstrate that God ordains authority, but also how we promote and manifest that type of authority that God endorses. In other words, what we are talking about is just as important as the way we carry ourselves and how we submit to governing authorities. So I think it's this biblical vision that led Dr. King to his nonviolent commitment. He said this in a December of 1964 at a Nobel uh, lecture. He said, we adopt the means of nonviolence because our end is a community at peace with itself. What's he saying? How could we expect those who lead over us to make peaceful decisions if we're not willing to be peaceful? How could we expect this legislation to demonstrate love for all people if I'm not willing to love the person in front of me? The way we resist demonstrates the type of community that we desire just as much as to the content of what we are resisting. We do good in the face of wrong. However, when we don't do good, when we don't do good under authority or bless those in authority, Paul says there's a consequence. If we resist authority out of despisement, desire, or disrespect, then we should expect a penalty. We should be afraid. That's what God's designed, and that's what God desires. He has instituted and endorses governing authorities with, which rule with righteous order. That's the idea of bearing the sword. While some Bible readers may find evidence here for capital punishment, it's much more a warning about the way that God's wrath works. His wrath is often dispensed through human authorities. And so, what does this mean? If you don't pay a parking ticket, it's going to cost you more. If you don't pay for parking, you're going to get a ticket. That is not unjust, right? That's, that, that's okay. If you break the traffic law and get caught, you're going to have a penalty, right? That, that's how God's law or God's word and God's authority is meant to work. You shouldn't get mad if you're texting and driving and you get pulled over and you get a ticket for it. Christians are like, my bad, I shouldn't have been doing that. I deserve that consequence. We shouldn't be those who are constantly trying to get out of consequences because they're for our good. Righteous consequences are for our good. That's not corruption. It's not mistreatment. That's consequence. Christians submit, I think, then, to fair consequences, and we don't despise justice, even when it comes at us in an uncomfortable way. See, Paul, again, he's talking about the norm. He's talking about a baseline, a purpose behind why God has ordained what he has ordained. But let's be honest, having laid that out, this is not the norm in our country. This is not the norm in many places around the world. And just because it could be worse, we shouldn't absolve our governing authorities from accountability. 
Right? We hear this all the time. It could be much worse. Move somewhere else. Well, that, that is not an argument. That is not a biblical case for what it looks like to uh, have authority in an orderly society. See, too often, law enforcement becomes not a terror to good, or rather to bad conduct, but to good conduct. You might say the wrong people in our society are often afraid. The wrong people are afraid. Those who are doing evil feel protected from a lack of accountability, and those who do good or have not done anything wrong feel terrified because it has nothing to do with their conduct and has everything to do with something else. See, Jay-Z should not have been upset because he was about to get caught with drugs in the back of his car, right? He was like, that, that's not the problem. But he should, and we should disagree with the racial profiling that's being exhibited and demonstrated in this story and this song. We should be upset by the systematic and economic disparities which led many people like Jay-Z into the positions they were without many other choices for their life. Are you with me? And so, what, what do we do when we disagree? What do we do when there's some unrighteousness that is in the middle of us? How do we respond with righteousness in resisting that? What's God's answer to unrighteous authority, in other words? Two times in our passage, Paul calls those who bear the sword servants of God. Look again at verse 3 and 4. Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So the police actually are meant to accomplish God's purposes. Underneath his ultimate authority and power, police serve God even unwittingly, because as we have learned through Romans, Romans chapter 8, verse 21, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together according, uh, for good according to His purposes. So God is always at work bringing about the good. God is in control, has authority over all things, even police. And yet here is the truth. Even police are fallible. They will not and do not always serve God's purposes with justice and safety and order. And like every human being that does not perfectly fulfill God's design and desire for them, they fall short. Therefore, like every fallen human being, we should hold them accountable when they sin and treat them with dignity as image bearers always. We hold both of those things in tension. In other words, if we hear a story where law enforcement are involved and we have a knee-jerk reaction one way or the other, we are either choosing fallenness or image of God too quickly. We have to hold both of those in tension for everybody. But that's not all. Whenever someone or something doesn't fulfill God's desire or design, we shouldn't just hold fallibility and image bearer in opposing hands, but we should also look to Jesus because ultimately, He's the one who fulfills all the promises and purposes of God. Jesus is the fulfillment and the fullness of God's design for human flourishing. Jesus is the one who follows and fulfills all of God's desires, even those for government and enforcement of God's righteousness. You see, one day Jesus is going to bear a sword. Did you know this? He's going to be the true and better servant of God. Listen to the way that John describes Christ's return and see if you can't discern the fulfillment of justice and righteousness and the governing authorities here. Revelation 19, it's a vision that he has. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and the righteousness, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and his head and on his head, rather, are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. 
and the armies of heaven are arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepresses of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is terrifying. This is terrifying. We're getting a picture of a ruling judging, conquering, hero, savior, king, who not only has a sword coming out of his mouth, but his legs are tatted with king of kings and lord of lords. And we're told one day that's how Jesus is going to come back. One day when all is said and done, he's going to come back and the only people who have anything to fear are those who have done wrong. And the only people who will have nothing to fear are those who have done good. In other words, he will only be a terror to bad conduct. Rules with an iron, fire in his eyes. But John does not simply talk about Jesus, this rider on a white horse. In the previous passage, he spoke about him as a lamb. He says, and the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said, these are are the true words of God. We're told from a fuller picture of the scriptures that the bride is the church and the groom is Jesus himself. And their nuptials, their eternal union is sealed with the blood of the lamb. You see, before Jesus is the bearer of a sword who judges, he's a lamb who dies. In other words, this is what real righteous authority looks like. He resists unrighteous authority through sacrificial Love. This is the beauty of the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Jesus does not destroy, the Son of God does not destroy Babylon and all of the kings and upend the entire governmental authorities. What does he do? In Daniel chapter 3, verse 25, we're told he gets into the fire with them. Because when the king Nebuchadnezzar looks at the flame, he doesn't just see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He doesn't just see three, he sees four. Do you see, we've never been led by a governing authority like that until we've met Jesus. One who has a sword coming out of his mouth and his legs tatted up like brilliance, right? Like awesomeness. But he's also the one who says, I will die for you. I will endure the pain for you. See, Jesus is our ultimate authority and Jesus is the ultimate enforcer of the truth, but he is also our ultimate love who dies for those who are underneath his care and underneath his authority. And so forever, you will be frustrated by governing authorities because they are not Jesus. They're not him. See, every time we should hold authority accountable, we should resist resisting authority in inappropriate ways. But we should also know that we will remain unsatisfied in this world because we're longing for something else. We're longing for someone else. There is no human authority who will ever satisfy because no human authority is that beautiful. In his book, Decoded, Jay-Z actually explains uh, that while the scene in 99 Problems was based on a true experience, it's ultimately fictional. Yet the power in the story rings true, doesn't it? See, albeit in different ways. If you have a favorable view of police in general, you hear that song and you're immediately turned off by the fact that the driver is trafficking cocaine. 
You're like, he's wrong, he's guilty, he's resisting authority, that's right. This is why I don't like rap music, right? Something like that. You should repent of that, by the way, if you don't. If you don't have a favorable view of the police, then you're repulsed by the officer's racism. He's wrong. He's guilty. He's a terror to good conduct. Jay-Z says that dichotomy is actually intentional because that tension is real. Here's what he says the song is about. It's about being stopped by the cops with a truck or trunk rather full of coke, but also about the larger presumption of guilt from the cradle that leads you to having the crack in your trunk in the first place. If we have a really simple answer to law enforcement and governing authorities, we are missing the gospel. If it's really clear to us right away who's right and who's wrong, we are missing the complexity and beauty of the gospel. If we bristle at resisting authority, if we bristle at not resisting to authority right away, we need to check our hearts. It's just not that easy, is it? This is really complicated. And so may I leave you with a series of questions. Why do you want to resist authority? Do you despise it? Do you desire it? Do you disrespect it? Or do you disagree with it? How have you seen the enforcement of law be actually a blessing in your life, been for your good? And what might it look like for us as followers of Jesus to live in this tension of the already but not yet, where we see the authority of Jesus being expressed in our world, but ultimately we're waiting for a conquering king with a sword who has died for us, with one who lays down his life for us so that we'll see the truth and beauty, justice and righteousness fully alive in our world. Can you imagine if we were a community who navigated those questions honestly? Together, not immediately, but together as we waited for the real governing authority to come back and set everything to rights. Let's pray.